standing and hear the words of our God as we continue through the Gospel of John. I'll be reading chapter 10, verses 10 through 21. These are the words of God. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As a father knows me, even so I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? As far the reading of God's word, let's ask his blessing now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for this gospel in particular. Open our eyes and soften our hearts. Draw each one here to the good shepherd and have your way with us. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So this passage completes our Lord's discourse with the Pharisees. I mentioned this last Lord's Day. This comes on the heels of the affliction of the, um, of the, affliction of the man that the Pharisees brought upon him to whom Jesus had given sight. Jesus gives sight to this blind man and, and then it ends up the Pharisees end up excommunicating him, kicking, out, kicking him out of church. That's the difference. That's this stark difference that Jesus wants to make between these false teachers, these hypocrites, and who he is, the good shepherd. It's important to remember that this is not a peaceful interchange, nor a sweet idea from Jesus to his followers. It's, it, it's not a, a peaceful, tranquil moment where they're all sitting around, and, and Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and everyone goes, oh, that's just so sweet. It's not what's going on at all. There's, there's a direct conflict going on with the Pharisees openly and in public. This is going to be part of what pushes them to finally send Jesus to be crucified. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he is speaking to and contrasting himself from the thieves, robbers, and wolves who seek to exploit, steal, and destroy, along with the hirelings who will not protect the sheep. These are not compliments to the Pharisees. But in addition, we ought to keep in mind that we are the sheep in this passage, not an entirely complimentary status for us either, to be sure. Nevertheless, Christ is the good shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd, and he is confident of who he is, of who are his, what he's going to do. He's, he's confident of who his sheep are and of what he does for his sheep and how this plays out in the intimate knowledge of the Father and the Son with one another and the shepherd and his sheep with one another. He's going, to, he's going to say that his relationship to us can be compared to his relationship with the Father, the two persons of the triune God. That's a powerful and, and personal promise that comes to us to understand. This is, this is really good news for dirty, wandering, forgetful, petty, dumb 
sheep like me, maybe like you. So let's take a look at this passage and continue to see this discourse. Again, verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. I'm just going to read them again. The thief comes not, does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. So these two stark contrasts are being made between Jesus and the Pharisees. He says, they are coming like thieves to kill and destroy. They are coming to devour. They are coming to eat. I have come, he says, to protect, to care for, to feed, to nurture. Jesus comes to give life, he says. And he says, not only have I come to bring life, but that you might have abundant life, more abundant life. Then second, they're like hirelings, he says. They only, they only seek for what they can get out of it. That's why they're there. That's why the Pharisees are there, he says. They have reached this status of being able to control, lead, direct you because of what they can get out of it. That is not the reason that Jesus has come. That's not the, re- that's not the way a true head, a true king, a true leader comes. Not for what he can get out of it but for the ability to be in a position where he can provide for, take responsibility for, draw unto himself for companionship, for intimacy, for nurture, for protection, for feeding. That's what a king is for. That's what a shepherd is for. Pharisees are not like that, he says, and many, many leaders are not like that at all. These are the stark differences. This assessment by Jesus is true of all false religious leaders. Those who teach that salvation is based on good works, work, 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 get better, get better, get better, or you won't be saved, or religious rites and performances, go through these acts, do these particular things, and then you know for sure that you'll be saved. Those who refuse to call sin by its name, that's a dirty word in our day, we don't want to call it sin, we'll call it stumbles or difficulties or... No, it's sin, and God hates it. Those refuse to call sin by its name and instead tolerate and even celebrate it, calling evil good and good evil. Those who twist the gospel just to attract followers, these are the wolves. These are the wolves. Jesus said that he is the door, he's the only door, and he's the only way of salvation, in verse 9 before. And that way would be his act of laying his life down for the sheep, verse 11. This is what he will do. He'll lay his life down. Um, My translation here says that I will give myself to the sheep. He gives his life for the sheep in verse 11. But it's the same word um, as, as is translated later on when it says, I lay down my life. I lay down my life for the sheep. I give my life for the sheep. And so Jesus, the good shepherd, is full of life and grace and peace for all who hears his voice. He feeds his sheep. He has, of course, um, we saw Ezekiel chapter 37 in mind where he is this, this shepherd that was promised. The shepherd be called David hundreds of years after David who would be like David, a shepherd king who would feed and protect his sheep. He also would, of course, have Psalm 23 in mind. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. 
You know, you can reflect on that psalm so many different ways. But, but, but maybe key from that very first verse, the Lord is my shepherd. Can you say that that's true? The Lord is your shepherd? Because if that's true, then the, the next phrase is also true, I shall not want. I, there, there will be nothing that will not be given to me, provided for me, for my good. When I come to the end of my days, when I enter into eternity, I will look back and see that everything I ever needed, everything I ever desired, if it wasn't given to me straight up, it was only because the shepherd was so good, he had something better, something better in mind. But always for my good, always for my protection, always for the end of more full and more abundant life and glory. That's what Psalm 23 verse 1 is saying. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. And sometimes I think what we need to do is we need to reflect on, do I believe the Lord is my shepherd and he is the good shepherd? Because I know for some of us many times, for all of us many times, we're not so sure. And it's what you need to preach to yourself. You need to hear the voice of Jesus. You need to hear the voice of your good shepherd again. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It will go well. It will go well for his sheep. And this is in stark contrast to the false teachers, the false promisers, the Pharisees, whose religion is full of simply devouring the sheep and their hypocrisy. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus would say these words to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. These are to the men in power, the men who could turn him over to authorities. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. There is a way to lead people into the darkness. There is a way to lead people into hell, and it can be very enticing. It can be sweet marketing. But if it is not the way, if it is not leading people to the door, to the only way, Jesus Christ, to take care of sin transgressions that will send you into eternal condemnation because a holy God has declared it. If, that, if you're not being led there and only there, then you are being led by one who is a hypocrite. One who is in his intentions, in the end, are the devouring of, of the sheep that he has gathered. Jesus Christ is the only way. He makes it straight up, sure, um, without, with, without any more conversation about it. He is the only way. And Jesus is willing to say this openly and in public without embarrassment and in full knowledge of what it was going to cost him. Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. So he didn't come just to, well, I, well, I want to come because I want to be the leader of the world. I want to be the leader of the cosmos. In fact, he already was. <laughs> He's God. <laughs> No, he came to give. He came to give, to give his life in a way that would completely affect his people, his sheep. 
Certainly there's some application when it says abundant life. There's application to blessings that we enjoy in this life as we faithfully walk in his ways. What we see throughout, you're taught throughout Proverbs, and it, and it makes just sense. If you walk according to the grain of the creator, you know, if, you, if you walk according to the way that he has set up the world, then blessings are going to follow. And if you don't, if you, if you stand against it, then you're, 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 it's like you, you aren't following the owner's manual. You're, you're, you're putting water where there should be oil in there. You're putting diesel where it should be gas. You're, it's, it's not going to go well. When you don't follow the owner's manual, when you don't follow the ways of the creator, when you don't follow his proverbs, his principles, his laws, then you aren't blessed. And when you do, there, there comes to be blessing. That's the way it goes. It tends to, the, the, the man who is following God, following his ways, confessing his sins, walking with him, it goes well. And, and life can be very abundant in, in the, um, for, for many. But it's not a promise of some kind of a health and wealth gospel. It's not a promise of a name it, claim it kind, kind, kind of a gospel. That's not what he's talking about because primarily he's talking about laying his life down to give us life, to give us eternal life, to take care of the, the deepest problem that we have. Primarily, he's talking about eternal life instead of eternal damnation, of being released from our slavery to sin, a slavery that some don't even realize that they have as, they are, uh, as, as they're wrapped up in it to the chains of guilt and misery from sin. Those who do understand their sin do understand how much they've offended God, and do understand in their sin how much they've offended and hurt others. Jesus says, I've come to take care of the guilt and the shame. I bore your shame. I bore your shame. I took care of it. I took care of your guilt. I took care of the sin that would cause you to stand before me as judge and be sent, rightly so, into eternal damnation. And instead... I've come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. He's come to release us from the grit that it had, this sin had on us in our old nature. Instead, we enjoy freedom from sin. Not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. Forgiveness from our trespasses. Your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. Those words that you hear ought to be so sweet, so releasing, your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. Fellowship with our Lord. Fellowship with your elder brother, Jesus, who knows you by name and who invites you to come and know him in a deeper and pers more personal way all, all the days of your life and then forever. Mercy and grace by his spirit to obey and enjoy God. He doesn't set you up and say, okay, I've saved you. Now go do the rest. He says, here's grace, here's mercy, here's the work of my spirit in you. He will teach you all things. He will cause within you to, to will and to do according to my good pleasure. I'm going to walk with you all the days of your life. I will never leave you and forsake you. And direct access to God the Father through his Son who constantly makes intercession for us. Here's, here's, here's a wonderful thought about that. How often have you forgotten to pray? You're, you're doing something. It's not going well. And, you, and all of a sudden you realize, I haven't even prayed about this. You know what Jesus has been? He's been praying for you. He's been praying for you. He's very aware. Doesn't mean you shouldn't. He's your Lord. You should join in and imitate him. 
But here's the good news. All the time that you happen to forget that you're with God or that God is with you, He's not forgotten. And He is constantly drawing you to Himself. He's constantly feeding and nurturing. He's constantly with His rod and staff um, pointing you, moving you back into the way in which you should come. He knows you're a sheep. We'll spend a little bit of time at the end of that, uh, end of the sermon talking about that a little bit more. He knows you're a sheep. Sheep are dumb. Yeah. He's the good shepherd, and he lays down his life for the sheep. It's in verse 11 at the end. He lays down his life for the sheep. Here we have a prefiguring of the cross and is the means by which he gives us life and life more abundantly. He says a little bit more in verses 17 and 18. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. This laying down of his life was his vicarious sacrifice, a substitutionary atonement. A Jew would completely understand this. He had seen, he had seen lambs, sheep sacrificed regularly as a substitute. You'd lay your hands on the sheep. The, you, would, you would slit the sheep's um, neck. You would, you would, the blood would be drawn out. It would be offered up to the Lord. There would be a sacrifice given. You knew that instead of you having to die, someone else was going to have to die. And then John the Baptist would one day say, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And, and by faith, by the work of God's Spirit, it all would connect. And you'd go, He's the one. He's the one who's going to take care of all of my sin. He's the one who's going to be my substitute. It's not a substitute like, um, uh, like in, a, uh, in a soccer game or a basketball game where um, you're called out and your substitute goes in and they, and they, and they play and you're not playing. It, it's, not a, it's not a substitute like that. It's a, it's a substitute um, much more as a, as a federal representative. It's like um, when we elect an official to go to... Um, uh, to serve in the House of Representatives, for instance, in, in, in Washington, they go as our substitute. They go as our representative. In fact, we go in them. We are represented in them. Um, and, and it's that kind of substitution that is taking place. What happens, the, the decisions that are made there, the acts that are taken there, we participate in them by, by the representation that is going on there. So when Christ dies on the cross, we die on the cross because he is our representative. When Christ is buried in the ground, we are buried with Christ because he is our representative. And when Christ is raised from the dead, we are raised to new life. Sins all paid for because he is our representative head. He is our federal head. So this laying down of his life is something that we participated in. Headship. Headship is something that's really important to understand. Headship is the glad sacrificial responsibility taken for those under you. Headship is what kings are about. Headship are what husbands are about, fathers are about. Headship is what about civil leaders are to be about. Headship is one of the reasons you need to come to men's meeting tonight and learn about what it means to be a man. Headship is the glad the glad assumption of sacrificial care for those under you, the taking of responsibility for those under your care. And, and this is, Paul has this in mind as he speaks to husbands and says, husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, and gave himself for her. That's, that's what headship is. That's what Jesus does for us as the good shepherd. He says, I lay down my life 
for the sheep. And then look at verse 14. Verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. Of course, Jesus knows everybody. What does it mean he's known by his sheep and he knows his sheep? Well, this knowing refers to the covenantal union between the sheep and Jesus. You saw it in the baptism this morning. The, the, the declaration of covenantal union in the, in, the, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, in the cleansing waters, in the person himself with the person who is baptized. Along with the definite work of his atoning sacrifice, it accomplished exactly what Jesus said to accomplish. He, he saved exactly those whom the Father gave him to save in his work on the cross. There were no misses. There were no misses. It's all, it is all done and complete in Christ. And then in verse 16, there are these wonderful words that apply to us. And other sheep, he says, I have which are not of this fold. The fold of the, of the Jews he's referring to there. He's speaking to the Jewish nation. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice. They will hear my voice as well. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. So this, this promises this one flock from many sheepfolds. Remember, remember the picture I told you uh, last, last Lord's Day, where you have, uh, in a large city, you'd have all the shepherds would come and bring their sheep. And so you would have different flocks that would be placed into one sheepfold. And then at the end of the next day, the sheep would call, or the shepherd would call, and he would, he would call out his flock, and the, that flock would hear his voice, and they would come out. Well, here what Jesus is saying is there's only one sheepfold. So there's many sheepfolds. We're all, we're all over the place now. There's only one flock. There's only one shepherd. And we all hear his voice when he calls us. So he promises one flock from many sheepfolds, which then prefigures also the salvation of the nations. Many sheepfolds, but just one flock. We're told that the prophecy of, of in, in, in um, Psalm chapter 2 is, given, uh, is, is about Jesus. Very explicitly, we're told that in the book of Acts, where the psalmist writes, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me. And I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. One flock, many sheepfolds. Revelation 7, 9, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. Reconciled nations, first of all, reconciled before God. And as we've seen, I want, to, I want to bring this out again, reconciled to one another because they are of the same flock. The only way that enmity against man, the enmity against men is going to be solved. The only way that enmity between men, between nations, between peoples, between nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues is when those men are first of all reconciled to Jesus Christ and then are declared to be and brought into the one flock, even though there's many sheepfolds. That is the only way that enmity between nations will come to an end. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, the proclamation of the gospel and the hearing of the voice of the one shepherd to the one flock. Many people, um, and, and um, A.W. Pink says this, I think this is important too. Many people are troubled by the presence of denominations but Jesus does not say there will only be one sheepfold. 
He says that there will be only one flock. And so so there's not, we're not talking about a complete uniformity, but rather a unity that is ours by the Spirit of God. In Ephesians 2, talking about that enmity between races, that enmity between peoples, between, particularly between the Jews and the Gentiles, Paul writes, to a Gentile church, he writes, for he himself is our peace and has made both one, that is Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God and one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. There is the answer, the answer that our nation and in these, these horrible days of stirring up enmity, we need to preach the gospel all the more, that that is the only way the enmity between peoples can be solved, is through, is through submission to and the receiving as Jesus as Lord of your people. Jesus as Lord of your people. So Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known by my sheep. And then in verse 16, it says, and they will, with regard to verse 16, the, the, uh, the fold that is still to come, he says, and they will hear my voice, verse 16, which is interesting because now what we're talking about here is, is people who are like us, generations later, in the 21st century, who are his sheep but would come to him long after he ascended his throne. How do we hear his voice? We can take it all the way back to the Gospel of John. When John's writing, he's writing most likely to the church, primarily he's writing to the church at Ephesus. Many of those people never had heard the voice of Jesus. Jesus never traveled to Ephesus. So how do they, what does he mean? He hears his voice. Well, for them, they heard his voice the same way that he hears, he, we hear his voice. And that is in the ministry of preaching and the witnessing of the Gospel of Christ. Paul would write about this in Romans chapter 10. When he says, how then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Paul's writing and he's talking in, in, in Romans 9, 10, 11 about the salvation of the world of all the nations. The Jews will have, reject, have rejected Christ. And because of that, the, the, the Gentile nations are hearing the word of God. In fact, it's the persecution by the Jews of the, of the first church in Jerusalem that sends them out all over and begins this work of, of, of missionary work to all the other nations. And when Paul's writing, he's on his way. He wants to go to Rome. He says, I want to go all the way to Spain. And, and, I, and I'm writing to you to let you know that they're going to, people are going to hear the voice of Christ and they're going to come. This is the, this is the plan from the beginning. But it says, well, how shall they hear and believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And he answers in verse 17 of Romans 10, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is an effectual hearing that takes place in the preaching of the gospel that God uses his preachers and God uses his people in sharing the word and sharing your testimony and sharing of Christ to do miraculous things that you can't do, but God does through you by his spirit to the glory of his name. The harvest continues. The voice of Christ continues to go out and he is calling his sheep. He is calling his sheep by name. This is the good news that he's giving in the midst of standing against the Pharisees. 
And then in verses 15 through 18, we see some of um, the, the purpose and will of the Father and the Son, their, um, their agreement, their unity in their work upon this earth. The covenantal love that the shepherd has with his sheep is an outpouring of the covenantal love that the Father has with the Son and the Son with the Father. Listen to verse 15. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I laid my life down for the sheep. In verse 14, right beforehand, he had said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known by his, and I'm known by his own. And I told you that's this covenantal knowing, this, this covenantal union of knowing that he's talking about. And he says, it's just like the covenantal love <coughs> that I have with my father. I have water. Excuse me. In uh, verse, verse 17, it says, Therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Th this does not mean that the father withheld his love until Jesus agreed to lay down his life. Rather, the eternal love of the father and the son, which is an eternal love before the foundation of the world, the, the eternal love that the father and the, has for the son and the son for the father is is the only way that it could be possible that we could love, that we could have a relationship of love. How could we have a relationship of love if the Father, as, as one God, with, with no extra persons, just a, a, a uni-God, an Allah, if, if, he can't, if he cannot love unless he creates, but, but before the foundation of the world, he can't love because there's no object of his love, but instead, if we understand that, that God the Father loved the Son eternally, and God the Son loved the, the Father eternally, and it was not just a, um, a kumbaya moment for eternity between the two, but that this love was purposing something. It was, it was purposing the creation and then redemption of people who would be made in His image. Here's, here's what happens. The, the, the Father loves the world and sent his love, that is his son, John 3, 16. The son loves the father and lays down his life for the sheep, and the two are completely united in this. This covenantal love includes the giving of the nations to the son, and so the end is not simply the death of Christ, but his resurrection from the dead, prefigured here in verses 17 and 18. Do you see that? Now, here's also what we're told in, in Corinthians. At the end, now Christ takes all those nations that the Father gave to him, and he gives them to the Father. He gives the glorified nations now to the Father. And this glory rebounds back and forth between Father and Son, and it's connected to this covenantal love between the two, and that's the purpose. In one way, you can say, well, that's why I'm alive. That's why I exist. I exist so the Father can love the Son in a manifest way, and the Son can love the Father in a manifest way that brings more and more glory to them. It magnifies the glory of the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. Why do you exist? To glorify God. To glorify God by His revelation, His revealing of His love for the Son. So He gives the Son you. Of the Son's love for the Father. So the Son gives the Father you. And we just kind of bounce back and forth between this glory, from glory to glory, between the love of the Son for the Father and the Father for the Son, and we are the manifestation 
of that magnified glory of their covenantal union. I'll just go sit and think about that for a while. It's, it's glorious and deep and hard to, find, hard to find a place to put it on the ground. But, but that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Romans 1.4. This was always the purpose and will of the Father and the Son. In Philippians, it says, Therefore God, uh, having after Christ is humbled and humiliated, he says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him, the Son, the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. His death would not be that of a martyr. Jesus' death on the cross would not be that of a martyr overwhelmed by his enemies. You know, people teach that Jesus lost, that he was overcome, overwhelmed by his enemies, and he died on the cross, and then God figured out kind of what to do with that. That's not what happened. That's not what happened. His death was a conquering triumph. His death was a conquering triumph. I don't believe that Jesus whimpered out those last words on the cross with, an, with a, it is finished. But rather with a triumphant cry of, it is finished. I have accomplished exactly what I have come to accomplish. And then he breathed his last. It was a conquering triumph. Paul would write in Colossians chapter 2, and you being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh... He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and has taken, he has taken it out of the way, listen, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In Psalm 2, it says that God the Father laughed and der- over those who would deride his son, over, over, over those who would mock his son, over those who would crucify and, see, and try to stop the work of the son and then hold them in derision. God the Father, God the Son knew exactly what they were doing in the work in this purpose of the son, and they did so because of this love for one another. He knew that in dying, he was winning for himself and his people a kingdom, and a crown of glory. And Jesus says all of this, all of this to a people in power that he, that, that he is himself deriding, that he is himself condemning. And so it says in verse 19, therefore there was a division again amongst, among the Jews because of these sayings. Well, duh. Many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Do not listen to him. He's mad. He's a madman. Do not listen to them who believe in Jesus. They are stupid. They are mad. They're insane. They follow a fairy tale. Do not listen to him. Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And you hear this sometimes. You hear people say, I, I, don't, I don't believe yet. But something's going on with those people, and that's our testimony. He's opened the eyes of the blind. These people are acting completely different than they used to. Or there are people that are different than all other kinds of people because 
The enmity's been put away between them and God, and the enmity's been put away between the two of them, between the groups of them. They're, they're living in a growing sense of what it truly means to be human, made in God's image. They're growing, they're, they truly are a new creation. Who are these people? They used to be blind like us, but now something's different. That's our testimony. This, that's what's going on. These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And it's almost as though they start to hear the voice of Jesus through our lives, through the testimony of our lives. Now, the division is also um, intended by God. He, he, is not, uh, he is not confused by this at all. Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. A shepherd brings peace. Listen carefully. A shepherd brings peace by beating up the wolves. Okay? The shepherd who will not fight the wolves does not love the sheep. Jesus doesn't cause the division, but he is not afraid to reveal the division. And sometimes we think it's so important to be nice because we don't. We don't believe or, or we forget that those are wolves that are devouring people. And they need to be stopped. And our sheep need to be protected. So Jesus doesn't cause the division, but he's not af afraid at all to reveal the division. He speaks in such a way as to reveal the antithesis. His truth-telling causes discomfort. Causes discomfort. But the fault is not in his character or his doctrine. The fault lies in the carnal mind of unbelievers, in the carnal mind of the Pharisees here. Romans 8, 7 says, the carnal mind is enmity against God. By nature, we hate God. By our fallen nature, we hate God. We hate his truth. We hate his savior. We hate his saving. We must not think it strange then if we experience similar responses. We should not expect it to... Uh, we shouldn't be surprised when they say, you people are crazy. This can tempt us to water down the message, to not look so crazy. But we are called to make a clarion cry, and that with the bold love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father, of the Father's love for the world and the shepherd's love for his sheep. That is what motivates us. That is what moves us to that kind of obedience. Paul would write, imprisoned for the faith. So Paul's imprisoned for the faith. He's writing to the Philippians. And he would say, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, well, that's wonderful, but also to suffer for his sake. And so Christians should expect to suffer for their faith. That's part of what's going on here because we, we live in a place that is at war with the truth. And so it's been granted to you, it's a gift to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. We gather to equip the saints. We gather that we might grow up into the unity of the faith. We gather that we might be able to open the word, nourish, and, and help one another in our lives. But then we are sent. We are sent out into a world. We are sent out to a world of darkness to be light. And the darkness doesn't like it. We should expect to be equipped in such a way that when we go out there, we can stand and say that Jesus is Lord and that he offers salvation to all who would call upon him and that we will make no excuses and, and we will not be ashamed to say he is the only way. Because if we're ashamed to say he is the only way, 
then what we are, what we are really doing is we are, we're, not, we're not taking advantage of the opportunity that we have to be used by God to turn someone from eternal damnation to eternal salvation. I don't say that so that you feel now guilty for having shared the gospel poorly. It's, this is all in, in the hands of God. I'm saying this to equip and prepare us to go and be words of victory, words of conquest, words that go and tell wolves, wolves in the name of Jesus, become a sheep. It's impossible. It's impossible. Except that I see a whole bunch of sheep here who once were wolves. That's what God does. That's what God does with His enemies. He makes them His friends in the proclamation of the gospel and the outpouring of His Spirit. Jesus says, go and do this. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, I want to end. I want to address sheep, sheepishness for a minute. <laughs> Not sheepishness being afraid, sheepishness like being like a sheep. Maybe it's just sheepness. I want to say this because I think it's important. Um, we say you hear the voice of Jesus, and do you believe? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus? I, I know that there are many here who, that, that you, you have a moment of, I'm not sure I believe. Or you, you struggle with, is my belief enough? And I want you to think about it. The, the reason that you struggle, the reason that you, you wander off, the reason that you kind of wax and wane in your obedience with, with God the Father is not because you're not a sheep. It's because you are a sheep. <laughs> the, the, here's, here's how I want you to think about it. There's a way to ask the question, do I, do I really believe? And find yourself trying to look deep within yourself for pure faith. I mean, do I really believe? Is this authentic faith? I mean, a real faith, right? And, and then what you do is, if you're honest, you, you, you look down deep within yourself, you're told to go off and, and really take a look deeply, and you find a very dark place, a very wicked place, your heart. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitfully wicked. And you find in there all kinds of stumblings and, and, and doubts and fears, and, and you might come back up and go, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Well, you need to remember, we are sheep. Sheep wander. Sheep are dumb. Sheep follow other dumb sheep into all kinds of trouble. The question is not how good of a sheep you are. The question is, do you hear the voice of the good shepherd? question is outside of you. The answer, I'm sorry, is, is found outside of you, not inside. The question is not, have you become authentic and real enough in your faith and belief, and are you like, never again will I ever wander away? <laughs> well, if never again you'll wander, never, never going to wander away, you're not a sheep. <laughs> they wander all over the place. All, we are all like sheep gone astray. That's what Isaiah says. The question is, do you hear the voice of the shepherd? He'll call you back. He'll come and get you. He comes and gets the lost sheep. The question is, do you hear his voice as the good shepherd? What happens to you? How do I know, that? How do I know if I have? What happens to you when you encounter his word? Are you drawn? Are you hungry for more? Do you want to follow that voice? Don't look into your heart to find your authentic self. That's what the world is teaching us around here right now. Look deep within yourself and find your authentic self. That's why we're getting ourselves into so much trouble as a society. Do not look deep into yourself to find your authentic self. Look away. 
Look away from yourself to the one who is nailed to the cross, who made a mockery of the principalities of powers, who is the one who died for you. Look there. Hear his voice and come and welcome to Jesus Christ. And amen. Gracious Father, this world is like sheep. We all like sheep have gone astray. We are all lost. And you have sent your son, the good shepherd, to call his sheep while promising him the nations of the world. We have heard his voice. Call others through our preaching, our sharing of the gospel, our lives of imitative sacrifice, that many more all around us would be saved. That is why you have sent us, Lord. And so that is what we ask for. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond. We'll sing number 45.